Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, thanks for being with us for the Three Martini Lunch. It's another one of our special editions here while uh, Jim and I are on vacation. And it's our second installment of Ask Jim and Greg, or as we uh, do it by shorthand, Q&A 2. So, uh, Jim, first of all, uh, I think we said it uh, to some extent in the first uh, edition of the questions and answers sessions. But we've got some really smart listeners here. I'm not surprised by that, but I'm excited about the engagement. They've thought about these issues really well. And it's just fun to see what's on their minds. And it helps us, I think, put out a better podcast. So this has been a great experiment. Yeah, a lot of these have been questions where I actually got to sit and think about for a few minutes that there's not a quick, easy, top-of-the-head answer that uh, that comes about it. Now, obviously, as we go through this in this podcast, Greg, people are going to listen. Now, now that I've said this, people are going to listen and say, really, you thought that through? <laughs> Doesn't sound like it. <laughs> yes, exactly. All right, so three big questions again today, and let's dive into uh, the first one. This is from, I, this is obviously not his real name, but he's uh, his Twitter handle is Movie Churches. So the question is... Wouldn't it be great if that was his real name? <laughs> that would be an amazing name, I must say. Why did the church's family name him that? But anyway. <laughs> Why have so many of the never-Trumpers left the GOP and conservatism behind? Jennifer Rubin, the clowns at the Lincoln Project... This is his words. Even seeming stalwarts such as Bill Kristol not only opposed Trump, but began supporting Democrats and throwing tantrums over conservative Supreme Court nominees and decisions. Were they not truly conservative to begin with or did they go mad? A lot to chew on there, Jim. I know I've got some thoughts, but I can't wait to hear what you think. Yeah, well, I mean, the the obvious answer that I'm sure a lot of listeners are yelling at their podcast player right now is, well, they sold out. They wanted MSNBC gigs. They wanted Washington Post gigs and things like that. I don't doubt that when you see a role for yourself um, and you are rewarded for that role, you get more of it. And a lot of these folks, particularly the Lincoln Project guys, particularly Max Boot, uh, writers like that who've all, they've all, Rick Wilson, they've all written books that are some version of, oh, I tried to save my party, but no one would listen. What a Frankenstein's monster I've created, you know. And I think it was uh, the book reviewer for the Washington Post, Carlos Lozada, who, who went through a, a lot of them and said, there's a lot of how terrible everyone else is, but there's very little, you know, rec- self-awareness of that. They like you were a conservative for all this time. Why does this only seem bad to you now? What changed? Obviously, Trump was a factor, but uh, policy-wise, you shouldn't be thinking completely different things than you believed four or five years ago. What the heck happened? And apparently, these books don't address it all that well. And I think that's at the heart of the uh, the question here from movie churches. For a couple of them like uh, Bill Kristol, like I'd say a David Brooks, if you want to put him in that category. Um, There was always a strain within the Weekly Standard, a magazine that I liked and read a great deal of what you call national greatness conservatism. I think they did a couple of uh, uh, cover pieces on that. And you could look at McCain, maybe also kind of had this as one of his core philosophies, who traced their ideology back to Teddy Roosevelt and who were for traditional values, certainly for interventionist foreign policy, strong military, et cetera, et cetera. But they didn't have that. There was no Tea Party aspect of them. There was no reflexive distrust of a big government. The argument, if I could summarize it in a nutshell, is that, well, the U.S. government is here to do big things. And there was considerable debate about what those big things should be, but they were not 
um, inherently opposed to this. Now, some might say this is kind of neoconish, and I guess you could make the argument that neoconservatives who rebelled against the left in the 60s, 70s, and into the 80s um, were not as skeptical of the size of government as your usual traditional conservative. But I think as the Reagan years went on, uh, you saw more fusion between those factions of conservative thought. So I think there's a little bit of the fact that those folks may have always been a little more open towards an activist government. But I also think that there's a element here of uh, these folks are very happy with the role within them in the mainstream media firmament. And also that like, this is the type of conservative the mainstream media wants to spotlight. Um, you're not going to get a pro-Trump conservative voice on the New York Times editorial page. It is very clear that like, well, the other observation is that Jennifer Rubin is special at the Washington Post because when she says something, Trump stinks, uh, Congressional Republicans stink, Mitch McConnell stinks, whatever she wants to write, the, the, the Hill and other publications will write, conservative writer, you know, declares McConnell stinks or something like that. And they don't say her name in the headline because no one would be surprised by Jen Rubin saying this. They click, oh, conservative writer, oh, it's Jen Rubin. Okay, like this is the brand identity. They can't let that go. If they came out and said, you know what? I guess I'm just kind of a Democrat now. I, I guess I'm, I'm left of center. Well, then there's nothing special. They're just another voice. And I don't know if you've noticed, there are a whole lot of liberal talking heads out there. Um, the other thing that I think is uh, at work in the Steve Schmitz of the world, uh, in the John Weavers of the world, of uh, those who were involved in the McCain campaign and Romney campaign, who have turned Stu Stevens, who I I'm on good terms with. I don't hate the guy, but I do think he is now, you know, 180 degrees of what he used to be. And uh, they all look, they were, had, they were in the driver's seat for two presidential campaigns. Now they're up against Barack Obama, who's pretty darn good as a campaign you know, running for president. They failed both times. They thought they were gonna win both times and they crashed and burned. I think it's easier if you're a Steve Schmidt or a John Weaver type to conclude, we didn't fail, conservatism failed. We didn't fail, the Republican party as a whole failed, right? And the idea that you know they were always trying to do the right thing is everyone around them who failed and who dropped the ball and who are out of touch with America, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's kind of that as a reaction to their um, things not working out the way they expected. This is something of a grand coping mechanism to explain, oh, well, the answer is Republicans were always bad. That's why I couldn't elect a Republican president. Yeah, that's probably more nuanced analysis than I'm going to give here, but I think you've got a, a, a lot of uh, a lot of truth behind that. Um, first of all, I think the Lincoln Project guys were always mercenaries. I think they happened to get hired in the beginning by Republicans, and they um, got a good career going. And then once 2016 came around, uh, they went hardcore against Trump. Trump got the nomination. All of a sudden, the opportunities dried up in the Republican Party. And as we know, Jim, making a lot of money is matters to them a lot more than just about anything else. So as you're fond of saying about some people, oh, these are my principles. And if you don't like them, I have others. And so who's willing to write the check? And so, you know, they're grifting, they're they're fleecing uh, Democratic donors now to put out junior high level quality ads in terms of production and content. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we had the John Weaver scandal and everything else. So the Lincoln Project, that's that's my hunch on most of the guys. The Lincoln Project, I'm not sure Jennifer Rubin was ever a conservative. And I think that's uh, potentially true for some others as well. Bill Crystal's. Oh, Greg, I got. I just want to interrupt you there. Uh, if you were around for the 2008 presidential campaign, she was writing for the American Spectator. Then we were at a bunch of the same campaign events. Jen Rubin loved Rudy Giuliani. 
She was gushingly over the top in favor of Rudy Giuliani. And you might say, ah, okay, he's the he was the one pro-choice option. <laughs> right. So maybe in that sense. But boy, oh boy, you know, people who say, ah, she was no, no. I remember I remember reading her stuff and thinking it was like a love letter to Giuliani, which is pretty ironic considering how Ruben and Giuliani have gone since then. <laughs> now, that's probably right. And of course, uh, she was very strong on Israel policy back in the day. And uh then she was opposed to Trump moving the embassy to Jerusalem, which was like a dream of, uh, you know, uh, activists for years. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, because Trump decided to do it, uh, she couldn't she couldn't stomach that. Crystal, of course, was um, Dan Quayle's chief of staff when Dan Quayle was vice president of the United States. And then once that administration was over, he got involved with the Weekly Standard and, and so forth. And my hunch on Bill Crystal is, is that he really, really enjoyed having a seat at the table. Uh, whether that was with the first Bush administration, I think he had a lot of influence as is with his position at the Weekly Standard in the second uh, Bush administration, George W. Bush, and he knew with Trump there wasn't going to be anything there. I'm sure he had some deep philosophical differences too, but if you had uh, nominated anybody else and that person had won that Bill Crystal didn't particularly like, I don't think you would have seen him going in 2018 going, we've got to elect the Democrats. We've got to take back the House and the Senate if we can. Uh, and so um, it, it's once again, it's a position of power. It's a position of influence. It's a position of uh, where I can make some money. Uh, there might be sprinkles of supposed principle in there somewhere. <laughs> I'm sure there are with some people, but uh, a lot of it is very calculated. And so uh, for the people that somehow forgot all their conservative principles, not a lot of respect left for them, if any at all. So good question. Good question, movie churches. All right, Jim, on to our next question. And there are certain perks for marrying the hosts of the Three Martini Lunch. And so Mrs. Columbus has her uh, moment in the sun here. She says, if you ran for president... Who would you choose as your running mate? And then in parentheses, you can't choose each other, although that would be an amazing ticket. And so, Jim, I believe the 12th Amendment would be a uh, stumbling block to two people from the same state running on the same ticket. I think that's why uh, Dick Cheney uh, ran up to Wyoming real quick in 2000 to uh, make sure that he wasn't officially a resident of Texas, as well as George W. Bush. But uh, nonetheless... We know the criteria. You got the same criteria as the president. Somebody over 35. It's lived in the country for 14 years. Uh, born in this country as well. So who do you pick? Greg, if you were my running mate, I would put everything onto your desk <laughs> and let you handle it. But uh, that's not an option. So you know, oh, one, you know you're you're going to have to move to Maryland or West Virginia or something. You're, you, you'd, I'd make you move, but then you know. Uh, then, then I'd like make you do all the work, and you know, I'd be keeping to a schedule that made Biden look active and vigorous. Although maybe, maybe the same kind of every weekend at a beach house. Or something. The if okay, so honest to goodness, you know, I, I remember thinking about like, so what what is your criteria in looking for a president? Because when you're president, and you're selecting a vice president. You want uh, someone who's ready to go if, God forbid, some assassin gets lucky or, God forbid, you have a heart attack or something terrible happens. This person has to be ready to step into the job and be the president um, and conceivably take office during a crisis. I mean, you know, so you've just died. Maybe you died in an in a enemy strike or something, you know. Um, so I, I thought long and hard about this. I think one of my favorite assessments of politics comes from... Richard Brookheiser, who still writes for us at NR, just a you know exceptionally wise guy, voice who's just been around um, NR for for decades and remembers William F. Buckley and, and all kinds of arguments about conservatives. And he had this observation where he said that anybody can just show up and tell you the right things of what they believe. Anybody can say, "Oh yes, they, they can 
fill out the form the correct way. They can check all the right boxes. They can say they agree with you, but that doesn't really tell you whether they'll do the right thing once they're in office. To know if somebody's going to do the right thing in office, the best measuring stick you have is their record in office. What have they done in the past? What have they done in similar pressures and similar circumstances? And you know, he's long. He's, he hasn't been active in politics in a while. But the, one of the few politicians where I've ever gotten real stars in my eyes over was former Louisiana Governor Bobby Jindal. And one of the reasons was, I mean, yes, I wrote a profile about him when he was running for re-election. The State Democratic Party couldn't find anyone who wanted to run against him. And one, I, you know, I was like, okay, well, how do you, how does that happen? How do you basically uh, metaphorically nuke? the opposition party in a state where they had the governorship four years earlier and there's still a whole bunch of Democrats. And the answer was, I think the strongest argument I tried to make for Bobby Jindal back in 2016 is like, look at the condition of Louisiana when he stepped in, devastated by Hurricane Katrina, about as bad a circumstance, about as dire a disaster as any state had in this, in this country has ever faced. And look at where it was four years later. And it had not just recovered a little bit, it had recovered a lot and there was a whole bunch of reasons, but like, you know, a very good illustrative example. Uh, is look, Louisiana always had a terrible reputation for corruption. And I think in all kinds of measurements, they were coming up like 50th in, in terms of state ethics laws and things like that. He introduced a reform package that had the strictest rules on accepting gifts and disclosing outside income and every single possible thing. And he said, look, if we go from 50th to 45th, nobody's coming back to our state. Nobody's going to invest. We need to go from 50 to 1 to get people to sit up and take notice. So the state ended up enacting the strictest laws for you know restricting outside income, restricting gifts, restricting stuff like that. Um, and that was like a big, you know, the sort of thing you're like, okay, you better swing for the fences and make a big change. Um, I, you know, you go back and read all my articles about, you know, what he had done in that time. But to me, that's that's the record. That's the proof in the pudding. Like he went into a really bad situation, and within four years, he had done such a great job, nobody wanted to run against him. That's what I'd like to see in the Oval Office. Also, if I run, am elected, and Bobby Jindal is my vice president, it'll be a very similar plan to my Corumbus plan. <laughs> Let him do most of the work. I will take the victory laps and spend my weekends at a beach home in Delaware. <laughs> Jim, I think we would have a lot of fun as president and vice president of the United States. I feel like we would be at the end the, of the, the era of good feelings and good laughs and <laughs> mediocre results. That's, that's exactly right. I feel like we'd be at the end of uh, that great movie that many people may not know about. My fellow Americans with James Garner and Jack Lemmon were at the at the end. They were announcing they were running as a ticket as former presidents, and then they got into a fight over which one was actually going to run for president. But uh, it, would, it, would just, it would just be a lot of fun. My question, though, is Biden doesn't do much. We know Kamala doesn't do much. So who's actually doing anything over there? Um, that's, that's kind of a mystery uh, to me. About Prime Minister Ron Klain. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, I like your I like your choice. Uh, I'm not sure what Bobby Jindal is doing right now. I'm sure he's making a ton of money in the private sector somewhere. Um, yeah, he writes for the Wall Street Journal like once every couple of weeks. Okay, <laughs> and making a ton of money, I suspect, with, <laughs> sure. you know, paying for three three college educations. I suspect. Yes, something like that. But uh, I, I do believe that uh, proven governors uh, would work well uh, on that uh, sense. I would probably. Uh, like to lean towards Scott Walker. I thought his eight years in Madison uh, were fantastic. Uh, he got a lot done in the face of really hostile pressure, which 
proves to me that he's uh, a guy who's not going to let the media and uh, the Democrats, even when they abandon the state, uh, stop the agenda from getting done. Uh, he's a committed conservative, and I would like to see him back in, in the mix somewhere. Um, he did run for president briefly. Very, very briefly in 2016. Uh, he was my initial guy out of the gate, but uh, it just didn't take off. It was a huge field. Obviously, Trump uh, attracted most of the attention, and, and Scott Walker was never really able to, to break through very much. He dropped out long before any of the elected contests. So uh, if there was any other name I would throw out there, it would probably be Tim Scott, uh, because I like ideas guys from from somewhere else, too. And uh, his work with Enterprise Zones that he did during the Trump administration, I think he had a far more thoughtful approach to uh, police reform, which the Democrats subsequently filibustered and called token uh, response to the situation. He's kind of a workhorse and not a show horse. He's also a guy who's a happy warrior. I think Scott Walker is too. I realize I'm parsing my statement here, but it would come down to those two. And I don't think I could really uh, go wrong either way. I think those are both really strong guys with long and strong records of, uh, of being principled, tough conservatives. Greg, what, what if we had to do Tim Scott Walker? First of all, think about how much they'd save on the signs. You only need to print three names. You don't need to, you know, you don't need to print four. That's some sort of unity ticket. Boy, wouldn't that be great? Yeah. yeah. It's like a Jeopardy category, the before and after Jeopardy category. Uh, Tim Scott Walker. Very good. So, yeah, uh, excellent question, I must say, to my wife, because, you know, first of all, it is a good question. But first, <laughs> secondly, I should say that anyway. Uh, but uh, fun, fun to think about. So uh, I do... Uh, need to point out, and this may disappoint some stuff, uh, Jim. As far as I know, you and neither you or I are planning to run in 2024. Is that correct? Ah! <laughs> um, you, you can go. I'll throw in 2028, 2032, 2036, and God only knows if I'm around for any more after that. But yes, that's that's not in my plans anytime soon. Sounds good. Yeah, you know, it's it's the old William F. Buckley rule. If elected, I'll, I'll my first step would be to demand a recount. <laughs> exactly right. CPAC Chairman Matt Schlapp explains why firing Nancy Pelosi and winning the midterms needs to be our white-hot focus, or 2024 might not even matter. I'm Bill Walton. On the latest edition of The Bill Walton Show, Matt and I also discuss how a small number of leftists are ruining our corporations and institutions and why conservative ideas are better because they work and they make us happy. Follow The Bill Walton Show at Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, on to our final question now. And if you are with us for Q&A part one, ask Jim and Greg, you know what question is coming here because we talked about this in advance, I believe, of the Terminator question in that initial episode. Our good friend, uh, Tevi Troy from the Bipartisan Policy Center, a faithful listener to the show. Thank you, Tevi, for listening. But he's most famous for commenting on our Twitter feed for any of our diehard references. And uh, so that's where his question comes. Can you rank the diehard movies in order of preference? Now, Jim, I suspect that our order here is uh, going to be the same. And I think our special caveat in ranking the diehard movies is going to be the same. But I'll let you kick it off. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I welcome all diehard inquiries from Tevi. And oh, by the way, like we, we alluded to this yesterday. Tevi Troy is an exceptionally fascinating, readable historian who like talks about the history of the White House and internal White House intrigues and, and things like that. Uh, often writes for the Wall Street Journal and everyone should read him and recognize that he is a brilliant, serious intellect who also is obsessed with Die Hard the same way we are. And uh, so he, he every subtle reference we make, he gets and stuff. 
Um, I actually don't think this is that hard a question. I think there's only one wrinkle. Basically, the Die Hard movies kind of get worse as they go on. Uh, they start out unbelievably awesome. I think Die Hard 2 is a great sequel. The only quibble, the only thing you could argue is, do you like Die Hard with the Vengeance more than you like Die Hard 2 with the alleged subtitle Die Harder? Um, and I think you could make that argument. I think I was, I was actually just on uh, Basic Cable the other night, um, or one of the the cable channels, and I ended up you know clicking through halfway through, and you know from about halfway through them shooting up cars in the rain, all the way to the I ended up watching to the final credits, and I wasn't even intending to. It's just one of those movies where you do it and enjoy it. Um, Live free or die hard is where it kind of really went off the rails. You can see the outlines of a fun movie or an interesting theme, the argument that John McClane is an analog guy in a digital world. And obviously cybersecurity is always, you know, there's there's always a lot of work, interesting stuff there. But it starts to really not feel like a diehard movie. And uh, Greg, there are rumors that there was a fifth movie um, that Don't it took it. place in Russia that it was called um, Yippie Kaye, Mother Russia, some <laughs> sort of, you know, there, this one was bad. It was really, really bad. Uh, or at least that's what I've heard um, to the point where, uh, by the way, considering what we've since learned about uh, Bruce Willis's health issues, you kind of wonder at what point did that start affecting his performances and things like that. I hope uh, Bruce Willis and his family are, are having great days these days. But uh, yeah, no, this was, you know, it starts out as a masterpiece, a very solid sequel, a really fun sequel that messes around with the format. And okay, fine, sequel, and then a fifth one that's kind of like that fourth Indiana Jones movie that never happened either. Yes. Yes, I would agree that uh, the alleged fifth uh, installment of Die Hard, which I believe was a good day to Die Hard, never actually happened. That's I refuse to acknowledge its existence, much like the fourth Indiana Jones or Rocky V, for that matter. They simply did not exist. We'll all be happier and mentally healthier if we just go ahead and believe that. Uh, Jim, my official ranking is, of course, the first one is the best. I believe Die Hard, the original, is the greatest action movie ever. And that I know that's saying a lot, but uh, it's not only a fantastic adventure, the writing is phenomenal. I believe, and I've said this before, I think it's the first time they gave a ton of good lines to the villain, uh, or at least uh, maybe it's just the way Alan Rickman delivered them. But, I mean, you're literally laughing at a guy who is intensely evil, and that's just not what you expect usually uh, with the villains. You know, you think of Bond movies and so forth, they're just, you know, uh, monolithically evil. And so... You still wanted Hans Gruber to die the entire time and for the plot to not succeed. But uh, it, it did make for uh, the, the adventure to go even better. Uh, so uh, I've, al- I've often said that if they just clean up the language a tad, uh, it would probably uh, be universally known as the greatest uh, action movie of all time, although there are obviously a lot of great options out there. But the writing, uh, the acting uh, from top to bottom in uh, the original Die Hard, and that's the reason we cite that one in our, in our podcast far more often than any of the others. Uh, is fantastic. I do put Die Hard with a Vengeance, also known as Die Hard 3, a second. Uh, it's just fun. Uh, John McTiernan, the director of the original, is back for uh, number three. Uh, and I think it, you notice it. There's a huge explosion right in the beginning. You're immediately sucked into the plot. Uh, you're back into a plot involving the Grubers. Uh, which is important in how the uh, the plot unfolds. You're in New York City, um, and it's just fast-paced action, Bruce Willis and Samuel L. Jackson. The problem I have with 3 is that that's where the uh, the action starts to become kind of cartoonish, and it gets mm-hmm. even worse in, in 4 and allegedly beyond that. Um, some of the explosions 
I mean, in all diehard movies, you're like, there's no way anybody would have survived that. Uh, but uh, with the ship at the end, and uh, as Tevi pointed out in an email exchange with me, the idea that Samuel L. Jackson is just driving by while Bruce Willis come, or John McClane comes shooting out the water spout <laughs> along the highway, uh, the ability to suspend disbelief kind of uh, becomes too much at that point. But uh, again, uh, the language is not great. Well, in any of them, really. But um, uh, in that one, uh, it's it's pretty intense. But it, it's still a very fun ride where they're driving through the park and solving the riddles and all sorts of other things. Uh, it's 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 a lot of fun uh, along the way. And the fact that it has ties back to the original uh, makes me put that at number two. Die Hard 2, Die Harder, is definitely grown on me over time. I think that one has the best plot twist out of any uh, Die Hard movie that I won't give away, even though it's 32 years old. But uh, you know, you got Fred Thompson in the tower. Uh, you've got uh, the other guy there from the tower and the, the airport who knows where everything is. Uh, you've got uh, this time you've got villains that don't have any good lines. Uh, you've got the colonel there, Colonel Stewart, and then you've got the Fidel Castro knockoff as the other uh, as the other villain. They're just they're just flat out evil. They don't they don't give you a lot of humor. Uh, and then. Uh, like you said, with four, I think it could have been a really good one. I like the idea of, you know, trying to combat uh, a cyber takeover uh, and that sort of thing, because I think that's a real world threat. But uh, in the end, the, the the violence got way too cartoonish and it, it made it very hard to uh, to stay within the movie and believe anything that was actually happening. So one, three, two and four and no other diehard movies happen. Excellent summary there, Greg. I'm going to add as you're as you're walking through the evolution of these movies, so much of the first one is about you know Bruce Willis playing this guy as a normal human being. Yes, he's a cop. Yes, he's good with a gun. Yes, he can kind of fight, but he's totally in over his head, and he's very human, and he's he's really you know struggling about you know trying to reconcile with his wife. And if he wasn't Schwarzenegger, he wasn't Stallone, he wasn't Van Damme, he wasn't a great martial artist or anything. He was just this ordinary guy. And they kind of played continued that into Die Hard Two. By Die Hard Three, uh, by by Die Hard with a Vengeance, you're right that they basically he's, he's surviving too many explosions. Um, he's covered in blood from head to toe by the end of it, but he's still walking around and acting normally. I also think you think about like Die Hard with the Vengeance being the turning point in this this series. Um, I like the small role that Al Powell has in Die Hard too. Uh, Holly is still in that one. In fact, even the you know terrible Dick Thornburg uh, <laughs> yes. is still in that one. So there's still this sense of other characters and this is all happening in the same world by die hard with the vengeance yeah there are a lot of references to holly and things like that but it's it you can but it, it's probably worth noting and we could talk about you know the die hard series for hours so die hard the movie was not originally called die hard it was a sequel it was a novel that was a sequel that was originally a movie by with with frank sinatra die hard 2 i believe was originally a novel called 98 minutes die hard with the vengeance was not written as a bruce willis die hard movie it was another one i think they were thinking about it as a Lethal Weapon sequel. So they've always adopted other things for this. And this one clearly has much more of a buddy cop tone. And you can tell the references to Holly and things like that are just kind of shoehorned in there. Um, and I think that's where it kind of goes off indifferently in, into that. By the fourth movie, he's fighting on a plane. By the fifth movie, he's fighting in Chernobyl, I think, or so. That's what I heard. You know, this is not that we've come a really long way and has nothing in common as the same name of the character, but has no um, cinematic DNA that is the same as the original one. And it's an unfortunate decline. But uh, I think we've seen that with a lot of franchises, the longer they go on, the less quality they have. 
Yes. Saver, Saver, Die Hard. Saver, uh, the first three, really. But the, the, the first one is, is so far and above the others that uh, it's why it's the greatest Christmas movie of all time. Die Hard 2 is also a Christmas movie, uh, but uh, there's a reason why everyone focuses on the original. And so that's one of the reasons why it's our favorite. If there hadn't been that one, uh, we wouldn't probably make that many references to the others, to be honest. But uh, Jim, you're right. This probably won't be the last episode where we talk quite a bit about Die Hard. But, you know, it all depends on the questions we get potentially for future editions involving our listener questions. So thanks uh, for those of you who submitted questions. For those of you who didn't hear your question, there's a decent chance that we'll do this again sometime in the future. So don't give up hope. Uh, and uh, if we get closer to a time where we know we're going to do this, we will solicit them once again. And who knows? Maybe we'll uh, just incorporate one here and there over time. But, uh, Jim, we'll be back from vacation soon. And I'll see you then. See you then, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Do subscribe to the podcast if you don't already and tell a friend about us as well. Really, really appreciate your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please keep those coming. Uh, remember to get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play 3 Martini Lunch Podcast. And follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great day and please join us for the next 3 Martini Lunch. Hey guys, it's Mock and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high-profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is. So tune in every week to hear us talk about the things or even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave Leave a comment or review and subscribe.